You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 115 is Julie Slick, a bass guitar prodigy. She rose to fame playing with her drummer brother, Eric Slick, in the Adrian Ballou Power Trio. Starting in 2006, Adrian Ballou being the frontman for King Crimson starting in the 80s. You're right now listening to a track called Mela from Julie's first self-titled solo album from 2010. She then recorded one more solo album and since then has been working a lot with another bass player called Marco Machera, recording four albums with him, the last three under the name Echo Test. We're going to be discussing some songs from their latest, 2019's Daughter of Ocean. First the song Ladies Legs at the Temperature Hotel. Then we're going to actually look back to Julie's second solo album, 2012's Terroir, to discuss the song Pie, featuring Steve Ball and Claire Wadsworth, and come back to the present for a longer tune, Know You Are Dead, slash The Gate of Light. And finally, we'll listen to a tune called Supercell from their 2017 album, Two Balconies. For more information, please see julieslick.com. For more about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support the show and get ad-free versions of all our episodes, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. And just so you know, there's some distortion on some parts of Julie's voice right toward the beginning here, but it goes away pretty quickly. Don't turn it off. I will play a little bit of Mela from your first album, Julie Slick 2010, which I picked that of the choices that you had given me from that album because it had those sort of repeated lines that are like King Crimson to sort of prompt you to tell us a little of the story of how you got into the extended Crimson family and then made the transition, you know, to actually make this first solo album. In the 90s, the bass just basically serviced the song very basically, bass basically, yeah. And when I discovered all this older music, I became obsessed with bass as a lead instrument. And then when I discovered King Crimson, the 80s formation of King Crimson with Adrian Ballou, when I was about 13 or 14, I immediately became obsessed. I was one of the original students of the Paul Green School of Rock before it was just known as School of Rock. And we would perform every few months, these shows like Zappa and King Crimson tributes. And it just started getting covered in all sorts of different medias. And it caught the attention of Adrian eventually in just a few years. And he did a tour with the students and became interested in possibly reforming his trio with some of the most noted alumni. And so that ended up being myself and my brother. When I got that phone call when I was 20 years old, it was like a dream come true. I, I've been holding on to this gig for dear life because Adrian's my favorite guitar player and one of my favorite musicians of all time. And I'm just honored to be involved in this whole Crimson world and especially to be kind of the first woman involved with it. So you've been doing that continuously and some of that was a little bit was the Crimson Project, which is that trio against the Stickmen, Tony Levin's band. How did making this studio album, was this a purely studio project, this first solo thing? Through working with Adrian, I've gotten lots of great equipment you know, this roll-in bass modeling system, I'm going to nerd out for a second, and lots of different effects. I had just met Marco Miniman. He's a ridiculous, like one of the world's greatest drummers. He was telling me, you know, are you really an artist if you're not writing your own music? I had a basic little roll-in looper and I started with Shadow Trip, just a very basic two-note bass riff, and I looped it and I just started playing over it. I guess that was really the first time I'd ever gotten into looping and stuff on my own. I just really enjoyed it. The way I write, I basically come up with like a drum machine part and then I will record my riff that I'm working on and then I build it from there. So I had a couple tracks, Mela being one of them, that I played for my brother 
thinking that he would drum on all of them. He actually said to me, you know who should drum on this? Marco Miniman. So I wrote to Marco, sent him the track. And the next day I had three different takes that were all completely perfect, that lined up perfectly on the grid because he's a robot, amazing musician. I just kept going from there and I decided to keep inviting guests. So of course, Eric ended up on the record with that song. And that song I wrote specifically, you know, inspired by all the progressive music I grew up listening to. I was still sort of finding my voice with that first album. I think it's it's almost more of a compilation of like, these are all my favorite things I like to listen to. And I'm still proud of that release, especially that first track, Mela. It makes me think of being a young 24-year-old again. <laughs> all right. So we want to get pretty quickly to the new thing. One more solo album after that. And then you started working with Marco Machera as a second bassist. So what we're going to hear... I take it you're normally playing like a six string bass, but it's going through effects and things so that you're not actually playing the bass line for the most part. Sometimes it, you'd be surprised. So you had one just build as a duo with him and then three now as echo tests. So we're going to hear Ladies Legs at the Temperature Hotel from Daughter of Ocean. That's the 2019 release. So what you're about to hear is a piece that was written by Marco. Marco and I share the writing. And so he sent me this idea when we were recording actually our second record, Le Fiel Rouge. And we bounce ideas back and forth to each other all the time. And we always save them. So it might not necessarily make it on one release because it doesn't fit the vibe and the mood of, a, of an album. So, you know, we have all the songs saved. We were working on Daughter of Ocean for about six years, and I really always liked this piece. So I decided to actually on this song, I am playing the bass line, playing my five string Lakeland. So we trade roles all the time and you can hear our two basses at work.
when Marco sent you this demo, you know, how much of this is it that initial, I want to say guitar riff, but it's all based through <laughs> through effects, right? Or, yes, it's based through the eventide effects, like the Yeah, exactly. That's all Marco. And I'm kind of playing that low bass, like driving with the pick, you know. What's the process of the two of you working together? If he comes up with the demo or you come up with the demo? We find that we work better actually separately. We, we When we started the project, we were playing in the same room trying to figure out what the heck we were going to play for these two shows that we booked in Tuscany. And then we just became obsessed with each other's writing. And again, we, we decided that when we separated, we were able to be more daring and creative. You know, you play differently when you're in front of an audience. Sometimes it's better. Sometimes you prefer to take your time and experiment on your own. So I'll come up with an idea to a point usually. And then I have to kind of step back. Okay, have I done enough here? Or have I done too much? Lately, I've been doing a little bit too much. I think I have one song with 27 bass tracks on it I'm working on right now. (laughs) But basically, get to a certain point and then I decide, okay, I would like Marco to add on top of this idea. Or sometimes I even will write like the beginning of a song, like Noku, for example. And that intro, that whole first section, more aggressive. The punky section is all mine. And then I tell Marco, okay, I've got it like this first two, three minutes. Why don't you write like an ending, a coda? So it always depends on the song. It's like I said, there's never really a formula per se. Basically, though, we tend to trade ideas back and forth. It's very rare that we would come up with something in the same room at the same time. And are you just using the same DAW so that you can you know, actually exchange project files or... Now we are. We didn't used to, though. He had a PC before I'm on Mac. So we were, I was just sending him an, a bounce of what I'm working on. I mix it to a certain point and then I send it to him. He'll add his six to 12 tracks, whatever, depending on the piece. And then he sends me the stems, the separated audio tracks. And then we send it to Alessandro, our drummer. And then he adds his ideas, usually in a much more rough demo setting because the reason I'm saying this is because usually the tracks that Marco and I record, the demos, end up being the actual tracks that we use for the song. Sure. If you're working in electronics, you know, why not? (laughs) Of course. And we use so many effects, like you said, so we can't really go in and and re-record. And plus, they live in Italy. Well, Marco lives in Belgium now. And I've been in Nomad. I'm in Seattle now. So it's really quite difficult to get together anyway in the same room at the same time. So, But when we record the drums, I try to have us all together. And I've been recording in my hometown in Philadelphia with my longtime friend, Todd McCoy, who I went to college with. He's almost like the honorary member of Echo Test. He really helps us polish everything. He, we record the drums with him. We record most of the vocals with him. And then he puts that, like, we call it the Todd magic all over each piece, you know, the crazy delays and things like that. I mean, not that we don't have enough already. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so I wasn't really sure how much of this was drum kit, how much of this was playing electronic drums or the sequences and samples that you came in with. We tend to mix them in and out. Uh, it depends on, you know, if it's locking, if it sounds good. It's quite difficult to really get it completely on the grid and having it sound like musical. So it really depends on the on the section. But sometimes I'm really in love with like the drum parts I create. For example, No, You Are Dead, The Gate of Light. I was really very particular for like the drums that I had originally programmed on that Gate of Light, the second half of that song. I had to go into the studio and basically like conduct Alessandro. Like, okay, it goes like, you know, so... We ended up, I think, using the drums with the electronic drums all at once to create this tribal dance of the zombies kind of 
<laughs> All right, we got this general outline of your technique. Let's zoom in on a couple little arrangement sections here to see if we can disambiguate what the sounds are here. So like this, like the thing that makes it sound like a syntho song. Yep. <laughs> okay, so that's still processed. You said the bass five? What? Yep, it's, it's, it's Marco's five-string bass. Okay, I see. Going through an even-tied pitch factor algorithm. He uses an H9, which for the music playing nerds out there, um, the H9 is even-tied. It's like flagship stomp box. I can't recommend it enough. That's like my Desert Island pedal. That one has all of their stomp boxes built in. So it's got delays, modulation, reverbs, and then all sorts of wacky stuff and, and harmonizers. So this is one of the harmonizing effects. So you can play one note and it creates this funky sequence. Gotcha. And then, so you're just, both of you being trained, do your figures ever touch a keyboard in the process of these things, apart from drum programming? Sometimes I don't have a keyboard. Sometimes it's my computer keyboard. I'm playing keyboard on the keyboard, if you know what I mean. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we do use a little bit of MIDI on other pieces like Tiger Races and Noku, like I previously mentioned, to fill out the sound. But in general, what you're hearing is mostly bass, believe it or not. I didn't realize, you know, I have an old harmonizer pedal, which it just, it's really an octave or pedal. It doesn't sound, if you just use it for the harmony alone, like it's going to sound terrible. The best use of it is actually to grab the knob and make it go, you know, to make it do silly things at the moment, but like, it's not actually a good sound. It sounds like a rapidly resampled munchkinized. So I would never use that to try to play the top line, you know, the guitar solo of a song. Sure. I mean, that's the thing about the Eventide stuff. You know, they're very famously known for their very expensive studio rack units. So those things, when they were first released, went for thousands and thousands of dollars and they've made it on almost every recording you've ever heard. When you plug a bass into it, it sounds pretty dang cool. And you're able to choose the notes in between a four octave range. You can go two octaves above the note you're playing and two octaves below the note you're playing. And then you can choose any intervals between. You can choose the spacing between the notes. You can change the key. That thing is like my salt that I, you know, I use like, hmm, I, I get stuck in on an idea like, okay, I've written this riff sans effects, you know, let's see what I can do. What can I add on top? Sometimes it's intrinsic to the riff I'm writing. Sometimes I'm turning the knobs and playing around and then, oh, that's a cool idea. Like this song, for example, like what Marco wrote, he probably was playing around, had the effect on and, and wrote this line. You couldn't really play it without that effect. It, it's like I said, intrinsic to the song. Let me jump a little forward, even just still in the first verse. I want to feel out how you're getting the sense of when there's still room for yet another line to fit in the middle here. So I noticed in the middle of verse, some, which I just said, you know, a new mid-high bass line comes in because I don't even know how to indicate these things. That this, I think that's kind of coming in. I can't even, I'm having trouble picking it out even right now. So you're erring on the side of, you know, let's just layer a bunch of stuff and then you fight it out in the mix as to what actually stays audible. Basically. Okay. Yeah, no, I love just how deeply layered. So what's the process in terms of, okay, now we're going to do this live. So we have to kind of pare down and decide which are the actually important parts or am I going to, do you use like a live looping pedal on stage some of the time so that you can have extra layers 
Yes, we do. For certain songs, like The Drift, I have the loop saved in my Pigtronics Infinity Looper pedal, and I start the song always with that pre-recorded loop. Honestly, because when I recorded that song originally, like I have no idea how I did it. <laughs> so I just took the sample of that loop and I put it into my looper, and that's how we started every time. But in general, in the past, we've played to... I've gone through the sessions, since I have all the stems, basically... I can listen through each one and I I always have to relearn what I played. I figure out what I want to play and then I have to relearn it. We sing so fast and I'm, I always have to label everything really well like because we use all these pedals. So I'm always labeling each track like the exact pedal and chain. This preset here, this preset here, this preset there. That's also why I really like the Eventide pedals because you create presets. You can twiddle the knobs and then boom, you're done. You, you hit save and it's always going to be the same every time. In that same section, in the second verse, we have this kind of female voice wall of sound. So that's Jennifer Founds. You have an extra member just to add. Yeah, Marco actually had originally added that kind of... Because he's a a weird little Italian man. I love you, Marco. He created that sound. And so we brought Jenny in. Here's the track. She kind of came in at the very end after we had everything done. And so she kind of got to wail on it. And so she heard this and, and thought, oh, I'll double that. That sounds fun. Then Todd put his Todd magic on it and mixed it in a certain way. And so it's very dizzying and disorienting, which is the effect that we want. And let me pick out one more spot. So about 2.15 in, this sort of military drum part comes in, which kind of crashes a little... That would be Alessandro. Again, is that kind of what he's hearing in terms of there should be a change there? Or do you know there will be some change here and I've got something programmed in, but like do whatever you want? Or I'm thinking that Marco definitely changed the drum pattern there. He created the drum pattern for this one. And then Alessandro just came up with an idea that went on top of that. So we have both of the electronic drums and Alessandro playing there at the same time. The, the electronics, I think, are mixed pretty low. But there was a clear distinction between the A section and the B section there. It's supposed to kind of build at the end with that drum pattern. And then throughout, I guess the other sonic element here is this. Is that actually just vocal or is that a little sample of some sort? I think it might be the electronic drums. Okay. It might be like a beatbox. And I also added some like tabla section to that. I think when Marco originally sent me this song like four years ago, and I, like I said, we were working on Le Fiel Rouge, our second album the only thing that i could contribute to it was was like that tabla section at the end because there was so much going on like you said with that cool fat synth bass it was sometimes it's a challenge to really pick through and go hmm, what should i play here what is going to service the song in the best way that breathy vocal thing i'm pretty sure is just like a beatboxed drum machine pattern a lot of our songs have like four or five drum machines on them not including alessandro <laughs> let's pull out that tabla section that's about 355 Yeah, so this very machine gun kind of tabla, and it's already over this like bird song, little digital squeaks, you know, this nice yeah. little uh, painting of synth nonsense. <laughs> what made you like, okay, we need a coda. We need something to, you know, have it move into some other little dimension. I, I should say this is a very compact song. You know, this is only four minutes. For us, that's a short one. Sure. That's a little ditty, a radio <laughs> hit. I think honestly, like what I tend to do is when I come up with a drum pattern, I just like loop it all the way through the session so I, 
was listening through and recording my idea. And then I thought, you know, this kind of sounds neat at the end here over Marco's open ending. Because I think it, in his original demo, the drums had already dropped out at that point. Or they were more, they were stripped down, you know, of the six drum machines that were probably on it. You know, they were starting to peel away as the song was coming to an end. And we just thought that the tablas should remain. Plus Todd, who mixes our records, he's a drummer. So he's got a really great sense of drum arrangements. That's why I say he's really like an honorary member because he does help us arrange the songs, especially the drums. So that's neat that we picked something that, you know, spans over time like that because we're now going to go back to your second solo album. So right before you started working with Marco, is it terroir? I thought it was terror, but it's terror with an I-O. Terroir, it's French. (laughs) Okay. From the earth. Got it. You know, before we talk about that Terroir album, I need to stop and tell you about our sponsor, Masterclass, an app to bring you classes on topics ranging from writing to cooking to sports through your phone, on the web, through Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, in video or audio only, from more than 75 of today's most brilliant minds. Some of the latest classes to be released include Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about scientific thinking and communication, David Sedaris talking about humor and personal essays, and Chris Voss talking about the art of negotiation. But of course, the ones I'm most interested in are all about the arts, including a dozen about music in particular. I've talked in the past about ones by Herbie Hancock, Carlos Santana, Itzhak Perlman, Danny Elfman, Real Geniuses, and the one that I looked at today actually fits in very well with our interview with Julie Slick. Tom Morello teaches electric guitar. He was the guitarist for Rage Against the Machine, and I just could not stop watching this one. He's got such infectious energy. He's, of course, an incredible player, but he stresses that it's about ideas. Ideas create art, not technical ability. And his goal is to help you develop your own creative voice, how to think beyond your influences. Now, like Julie, Tom is a riff rocker, those creative nuggets that form the basis for songs. And he walks us carefully through how to come up with riffs, how to leverage your equipment, the tone of your instrument to give you ideas, maybe detune a string. And once you have the nugget of an idea, how to try out various variations, maybe add a slide, leave out a note here or there, maybe double pick part of the riff. And for everything he demonstrates, there's going to be an accompanying PDF with the tablature. There's helpful on-screen captions that say, hey, you know, actually he's using this kind of scale here. I highly recommend you check it out. You know, you can get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Yeah, so we're talking about Pi from that album, that second album, 2012. Do you want to say a little about it before we add it? This has got some of the same elements in terms of, you know, let's come up with a semi-repeating pattern and layer over it in interesting ways. But And it's also not super long. It's just over four minutes. But you know, still, it's a kind of a different approach. Do you want to say a little about So this piece was written right after I had first gotten my first Eventide pedal. By the time I got to Terroir, I started writing. I kept writing the whole time. You know, I I never stopped writing. So it was like I finished the first record and I'm still going. So it's just 2010. I got these pedals and they were magical and wonderful. I mean, like I said, you can play one note and get two back. You can get four back. In this particular piece, I can hit one note and it plays a perfect fifth above that note. So I can play like something fast and it will automatically add these makes basically enables me to play the impossible. You know, I would have to have like four hands to be able to do what this does. So, and it also makes me think and play differently and more creatively. If you were to take the eventide effect off on this song, a particular pie, it would just go boom. 
And that's it. <laughs> but because it has that fifth, that delayed fifth, excuse my horrible singing, but the do 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 it just creates this lovely flowing waltz like movement. And I really enjoyed that. I I hit record, I looped it, and then I just started having fun over it like I did on the first record on like when I first started writing. And I invited my good friend Steve Ball to add some acoustic guitar. He's a member of Robert Fripp's Guitar Craft, a student of Robert Fripp. And he played along with that sort of synchronized, crazy, cross-rhythmic, creating all these polyrhythms, basically, against this nice, like, waltzing dance. And I had my friend Claire Wadsworth sing some, some nice ambient vocal over it because I just thought it could use some nice female vocal. And as you could hear, I am a terrible singer. So I wouldn't want to destroy my beautiful piece of music with my own voice. So I had my friend Claire add some vocals to it. Ambient, but then she takes over at the end. So yes, exactly. And Todd had a lot of fun there. That was this was the first record that I made with Todd. I mixed my first solo record myself. This was the first one I decided to hire somebody else to help me finish my vision. He took Claire's vocals and really went to town with it and created all these He built up her harmonies in a really lovely way. And it changed the piece, actually.
So it sounds like it's going to be a nice little slow 4-4 thing, this little fake-out intro. Is there any sort of method, especially a lot of times when I ask folks about, you know, how, well, how did you come up with this basic instrumental riff? They're just like, well, I screw around and it comes out. There's nothing really to explain, but especially with this one, was this messing around? It sounds like this was messing around with the pedal. Right, exactly. Like I said, I, so I, I had just gotten the pedal, and so I was like going through all the different presets and checking it out. And this preset in particular, this one with that perfect fifth, I actually use a lot just because who doesn't love a good old delayed perfect fifth harmony? <laughs> this was the first one that I was just goofing around on the bass and reacting to this effect and came up with this riff. Like I said, I would never normally play this like Mixolydian-ish, not minor seven, very happy sounding for my standard. I tend to write more moody music, but I just enjoyed this. And I actually wrote this on Pi Day. I wrote this on March 14th. That's why the name is Pi. And also I kind of has a three, four, the spring is starting, everything's turning green and blooming feel to it to me. Whenever I hear it, it takes me back to that time. But yeah, like you said, in general, my best riffs and ideas come when like my brain is completely turned off and I'm kind of unconsciously playing my instrument. <laughs> well, and part of what makes this sound different than like, you know, a Michael Manring sort of new age thick bass thing is the spastic percussion, which I associate very much with the King Crimson sort of, you know, especially the, the double trio and the, you know, let's, let's put a lot of polyrhythms over it here where it comes in, you know, it's 16th notes. It almost sounds like it's played on a suitcase. So this is, this is just the drum machine patch you're using. So there is absolutely no drum programming on this track. This is one of the few that does not have any program drums. I probably recorded it with program drums so I would play in time, but I muted the drums because I felt like the song needed that air because the thing is Steve Ball, like I said, created all these cross polyrhythms with his acoustic electric ovation guitar with the new standard tuning that Fripp invented. It creates this very percussive sound. And I thought that's all the drums I need for this. Got it. Okay. So I, I noticed a lot of, you know, later in the song where he's putting in these little 30 second note, like little fast lines, but I didn't realize that the whole, just from the start, that was just him percussing on his guitar. Yeah. So. And the funny thing, actually, the funny story about his collaboration on the song, actually, I didn't reach out to him to record. He reached out to me. I launched a Kickstarter campaign for this record in 2011. And one of the, the packages I offered at a certain price point was you get to play on a track on the album, which was really like, you get to send me a sample. I, I pretty much noted it that way. Send me a sample and I'll incorporate it on the album. He bought this reward. He wanted to play on the record. And he actually contacted me and said that he was more interested in adding something to an idea I had rather than sending me something blindly and having me add to it. At this point, I had never really met him. I didn't know like what caliber of musician he was. And I wrote back to him, you know, with this disclaimer, okay, I will send you an idea I have, but be aware, if I don't like what you add, I might not use it. I'm a perfectionist. I sent him this song, and he sent me those amazing guitar tracks back, and I said, well, congratulations, you've made it on the album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so how much, given that you weren't in the room with him directing him at all, how much sort of after-the-fact digital manipulation, or, you know, picking and choosing between the various things he sent and where it goes and moving things around. Was there any of that or was it just kind of... Honestly, no. I think for him, it was all just, let's use it all. It sounds great. I really liked what he did. Was the decision to put the little piano notes 
was that after, you know, okay, now we've got this acoustic guitar layering on it. Let's introduce more acoustic elements. That's at least what it sort of sounds like to me. But That was there already. He added on top of the piano and then Claire added the vocals. She was the last addition. So did then some of the piano go away? So did some, were there still like... I don't think so. I think it all, it was all, I was pretty happy with it. Yeah, it's like a real old-fashioned jazz session, except yeah. done over the internet, not in real exactly. time. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. With lots of overdubs and overthinking everything like crazy. So not at all like an old-fashioned jazz session. Well, that, that's exactly <laughs> why I stopped mixing my own records. <laughs> I got to a certain point, like, I can't listen anymore. It's funny, people are always asking me, yo, Julie, what are you listening to these days? And I say, well, besides, you know, my most coveted music that I've been listening to my whole entire life, or like what I listened to in college, honestly, like, I'm so full of listening to my own demos all the time because I just I'm always working and working and perfecting and whittling and try not to work them to death as best as I can. It requires a lot of listening to get the right vision out into the world that I would like to release. Let me just pick a couple little parts of this. So there's about a minute and 18 seconds in you actually introduce another chord. At least it's going to have the sort of blues thing where we've been on the route for a long time. We're going to go to something else and then we're going to go back to the route. I was hearing this as more dramatic than it was. It's in the same key. It always stays in B, but it just goes down an octave. And it, there's like this deeper bass line where it just kind of goes up, think a B minor scale. In the other section, you know, it just creates a different feeling, even though it's in the same exact key with the same exact root note. It was like the chorus, if you will the song and then at the end i know it shifts completely out of it changes key where i hit that major seven instead of the minor seven and that's kind of like i don't know i always i'm a very visual person and when i write these things i kind of see things in my head and so for me this song is it almost feels like even though i said it's like a springtime song and everything's in bloom and green it also makes me think of ice skating because it's like this you're gliding and it's pleasant and it's nice and then all of a sudden you like fall down basically in this section where where that note gets shifted just up a half step it's got this repetitive loop almost lullaby quality to it and then i hit that note kind of to wake you up yeah so that's 246 let me try to that sort of string pizzicato stuff that's just still steve doing I might have some pit string on there. It's been a long time. I've written a lot of songs since one, this one, but I'm pretty sure there are some pit strings that I programmed in there. Okay, program. All right. So the sounds yeah. it's a very nice sample then. Well, and so also just sort of like the those vocal in the last tune, you have this sort of rocket noise that does some of the transitions. That would be the waves H delay, probably. Todd uses that a lot. When I say Todd magic, it's basically H delay, some sort of H delay effect. <laughs> Got it. If the ethic for using that kind of thing is, is different, like if you've already got a drummer doing fills, <laughs> then you don't necessarily need like, how do we get to the next session? Let's have some go, let's have some, you know. Backward symbol, always backward yeah, symbol. Exactly. We do that a lot in ladies' legs. Exactly. <laughs> There's like probably 12 backward symbols on that track. In that, when you're playing with a full drum kit, he doesn't feel, Alessandro doesn't feel like you're impinging on his space by... <laughs> That was getting back to the question you asked earlier, actually, when you were saying, like, if I use a looper on stage or if we use, like, tracks. I mean, in the past, we were, we did use tracks. And because we were kind of married, we, we built these beautiful pieces. We would have, like, 27 
30 bass tracks on a song and we would just play like one of those lines and then have them played in the background, like mixed low and Alessandro would play along. So that would be to a click and everything would be nice and tidy. But lately the last few performances we've had, we've kind of gotten away from playing to the tracks because it doesn't really service the band live in any way. You know, a lot of the times the sound systems and the smaller venues aren't great. So playing along to these 30 bass tracks doesn't always sound wonderful. And we find that actually we can get the idea across. The basic quality of the song can be conveyed with just the two basses and drums. I mean, we have a lot going on as it is with all these effects anyway. So yeah, we don't always need those electronic drums in there. In fact, we're getting away from that. And that way, our, I think our live show is actually cleaner and more exciting now. Like pretty much anything beyond a power trio on a crappy PA can be difficult to decode. I mean, imagine 30 bass tracks going through a PA, you know? Even just figuring out where to put the keyboard or the rhythm guitar is hard enough. So having a lot of low mush <laughs> exactly, different ways. Which is not always low mush. I mean, like like you said, it can go up two octaves. I can make the bass sound sure. like a like an organ or or a guitar, you know, on that piece pie. I mean, you, that do-do-do-do-do-do. Like I have the bass modeling an organ there. But either way, it's still, it's just better to come up with other ways to perform things live. And then it makes the live performance completely different from the recording, you know. And we have on YouTube our most recent trio show from Prague that we played in June and we really got away from the tracks for that show. I think we maybe used them for one song or something where we really had to, to get the idea of the song across. But yeah, you should check that out because you can hear what the band sounds like as just a power trio. All right, let's just play the very end to see how you wrap this up. You know, actually ending it in a nice little symphonic. I could see a, a string quartet doing that. Like, but that was Steve's idea, right? That little last hook, or was that? Yes, that that was Steve. Yep. Maybe as a way to transition to this third one, I wanted to go back to the current album, but to take advantage of this history that you'd had in creating these longer crimson, sort of crimson like. This is not terribly crimson like. A real instrumental atmosphere that you sink into. So this is from the from Daughter of Ocean again, 2019. Know You Are Dead slash The Gate of Light. There's another place on this album where you went a little long and you said, oh, this is really two songs, but we're making it one track that's you know sticking them together. So Daughter of Ocean, I've been writing since 2012. It was originally planned to be my third solo album. So before I ever even met Marco, I started writing this piece, the first track, the title track. And I always had this vision that it would be one big piece of music. And so when I started recording it, I had it all in one session, which was a terrible idea. I would never recommend that. <laughs> I had a lot of problems <laughs> trying to sync things up and to clicks and things like that eventually. But we made it. And so when I wrote this, I was living in a treehouse in Humboldt, California with my friend Christy. And I had just the day before I had been kayaking down the Eel River. And we came to a point where all of a sudden there was a slack line across the river. And we noticed our friends were there and they were, they had set it up as a joke to try to stop us, you know, and we got to the slack line. I careened into it, fell out of my kayak, got out of the water 
and then started standing on the slack line on the ground. And our friend Abel decided to start walking across the slack line at the same time. And I stupidly stood there still on top of the other end and he fell off. And this thing came whipping up my leg and my whole left leg was basically bruised completely. I couldn't move. I couldn't walk. It was so painful. And I was stuck in this treehouse for basically the next week. I couldn't do anything. So I had been writing this song at this point, Daughter of Ocean, like this one big song in my mind for a few years at this point. And, you know, again, I'm always recording, always writing. And I just was so miserable and upset <laughs> that this is what came out. And I wrote it all as one big piece of music, but really it was meant to be seen as two sections. The, the first section, Know You Are Dead, and then The Gate of Light. And it didn't really feel right splitting it on the album. We did split other things here and there, but we decided to leave this as the, the final piece and leave it just as the full 11, 13 minutes, whatever it is. Just like what we did with the beginning track, the first track, Daughter of Ocean, however long, seven minutes, you know, that's almost like, that's an overture, basically, for the whole album. We, we try to weave the themes in and out. The concept behind Daughter of Ocean wasn't the original concept, but what ended up being the concept, I was inspired by these articles that I had seen where these taxi cab drivers in Japan were reporting that they were picking up ghosts of the tsunami that happened in 2011. And I just found that really fascinating. Like these ghosts would get into their cabs and be like dripping wet. They would give a certain location that didn't exist anymore that got destroyed in the tsunami. And the cab drivers would turn around and that person would be gone, you know? And there were other instances where people who were kind of lighthearted about it, they would go down and see the ruins and they were finding themselves possessed and they would go to these temples and get exercised. And so the whole idea and concept behind Daughter of Ocean is that it starts out kind of in a nice, pretty way. Like I'm talking tiger races because really Daughter of Ocean is an overture of the whole thing. When it starts as tiger races, it's really like that song's about our youth and, and going back and everything's light and happy. And as the album progresses, you're sort of getting possessed by these dark forces. Dull Eyes Lighthead is like the pinnacle of that. It's very aggressive. And you have these two female vocal tracks, Beth Fleener and, and Jenny Founds, having at each other, making these very almost inhuman, crazy sounds and then it ends with no you are dead like this acceptance you know okay these ghosts have to realize that they're not actually still here amongst the living they need to go on to the next dimension the gate of light go towards the light so it was also a metaphor for you know dealing with depression as cheesy as that might sound when you go through a depressive phase and as a musician i mean who doesn't or you know, when you're completely injured, like your whole leg is completely purple and black and blue, you sort of get to that low point, the death, and then there's only one way to go, and that's up. So this was my sort of processing and, and, and healing and trying to get better. It ends in this hopeful way, but then it sort of, we mixed it in a way where it sort of gets kind of creepy at the end. And Alessandro finishes the track by saying, please help me in Italian. Yes, I'm going to fade out during a few, after a few repetitions of his prayer rather than because it goes on another minute after that as sort of like end of album, is it really over kind of stuff. It's almost like supposed to be the sound of like that ghost kind of being sucked into the other dimension. We're very influenced by David Lynch and that whole Twin Peaks. Sure. 
which requires patience, just like. Exactly. So he's sort of going into that other, uh, that other world.
so I really like the fact that you have set up this intro progression that repeats a few times, but then this, the big bass and drum thing comes over that. And it sounds like you're moving to a new, you know, the B section, but it's actually just still over the initial thing. It's just, they mesh together well enough that it just adds another dimension to it rather than actually taking it to different chords. I don't really have a formula. So for this song, like sometimes I'll just like loop an idea. In this instance, I came up with that descending chord progression and then I wrote this bass line on top and it just ended up working well together. So I just kind of weaved them. Yeah, which it's got that extra sting. <laughs> is that just pulling too hard on the bass string so that they're slapping back? Are you adding an extra effect to make that jaw harp sort of extra effect? For a lot of the songs on this album, I'm always using my bass six. I plug it into a Roland bass modeling system, and I'm able to make the bass sound like a lot of different basses, not just a Lakeland. You know, it models like Ernie Balls, Gibson Thunderbird, fretless basses, upright basses. It models, again, keyboards, guitars. But what it can also do is pitch things down. And so for this song, I have it down to a drop C. So it's the same interval, still fourths across the neck, but it starts with a low C. So I think I'm playing those low notes. So that's why you might you, some might think it's Marco playing it on the five-string bass, but it's actually me on the six-string bass with the bass pitched down, with the analog pickups completely turned off, just using the MIDI base modeling. I play pretty aggressively and with the pick anyway, as you can tell on that part. Honestly, I think it's an artifact of the pitch shifting. You sort of have the advantage of like a purely electronic band, but still have things like that, you know, that actually make it obviously played. Marco's doing like the super high thing. It almost sounds like he's singing into his bass pickup. I'm not sure if he is actually, but it sounds like he is because it's very vocal, the, the bass track he sent me. So you're getting things back from him and you sometimes don't even know where no. <laughs> they came from. Sometimes I send him like ideas that are way too fleshed out. Like some of the stuff I'm writing right now is there's way too many bass tracks. It's almost like, good luck. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. I was having fun. And then he's forced to think more creatively. Okay, what can I add here? And sometimes he adds just really brilliant textures. So I notice around, by the time we get to a four minutes in, there's some parts that sound like they have feedback guitar. So how does this, the use of these emulators and things interact with, is there actual amp feedback going on that you're combining with this or is it just all? No, that would be Marco. And he's using probably a big buff or something, distortion. When the Steve Ball part in the last song, like he actually goes into something, not a full on solo, but like right. little distinct riffs where so many of these things, it's a sea of sounds that it's not like, and now we have the, you know, like it's just a completely different way of thinking about. It's a mood, you know, a lot of people tell me like that our music and my music is really great for driving and, and it would make really great soundtrack music for all you listeners out there that are writing movies, you know, just saying I'm available to score your next <laughs> picture. Like I said, I'm a visual person and then I, I get, I try not to like think too much because I feel like you can tell when music is really thought out and really like written out and like composed in this way. I'm not that way at all. I mean, echo test. An echo test is a, again, this might sound lame, but an echo test is a heart exam. So we think of our music as coming from our heart, not our brains. You know, we try to shut this off as much as possible. The original ideas, the original, the essence of the band is coming from here, like bass frequencies, making your heart 
sometimes we have to think and when we arrange things and create creatively like this puzzle to make these plethora of bass tracks and different sounds work together. Sometimes we have to think like, how do we arrive from this section to this section? And that's when I usually go, Marco, help. Or he goes, Julie, help. <laughs> and we help each other finish composing the piece or we're, we talk every day. We're always communicating. So was the length determined in your initial pass? This is the canvas on which we're painting. We can add enough stuff to make the progression through that makes sense so that, you know, you've got this long groove part at the beginning with this two, the two layers, which first is the treble and then adding the bass. And that, you know, that's enough just grooving on that with a bunch of ghostly sounds and little sort of semi solos and things to take you about five minutes. But then, so what's the rest of the, there are a couple other, in fact, let me just play. 617, I said, I wrote new drum pattern, something. Right, because it speeds up. Okay, yes, yes, that's what's going on. So yeah, what were you thinking still in terms of the ghost plot here? You know, what's happening in the plot at that point? Yeah, well, like I said, so that this is now the end of No, You Are a Dead. Mm-hmm. So now we're entering the gate of light. So this is like the acceptance that, okay, we have to transition to this other dimension, get out of this humanly body that we're in release the human let them be free let them be able to experience happiness both parties you know let the ghost move on and accept the fact that they're dead and move on to to a happier place and let the human move on to a happier place that's not being possessed by some crazy demon I'm trying to think how I did that. Again, imagine me with like this throbbing left leg. Oh, I'm in so much pain. Let's have the drum speed up. I mean, I think I was just like, on so many songs, I just have one tempo. And I just thought, you know, I really think there should be a shift here because we're trying to change the mood to a happier mood or at least a different mood. I don't know if it sounds happy to you, but... (laughs) So the drums are getting faster. There's some fancy sounding fast bass work sprinkled in there a little bit. Something I wrote, maybe Squawk Box. I'm sure that's not what it was, but the guitar is doing some total. Again, there's no guitar on this one. This one's all just bass. Right, right, exactly. But bass playing in the guitar range. The quote unquote guitar. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah if it has a good <laughs> distortion on it and it's high, then it. Then it's the guitar for Echo Test, yeah. And then I wrote at eight and a half minutes, new synth energy thing. Let me play what. And that's, whatever a, that's th- a bass. I know that you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So this is one of those, you know, '80s crimson repetitive riffs that's coming in to, you know, add drama here. Yeah. So what we have a new character entering at that point. What was going on in your with the plot in your mind there? I'm obsessed with these eventide pedals, and one of the presets I like is called a quadravox, and I'm able to play one note and get four notes back. And so, like I think I mentioned a little bit before, I can choose the key, I can choose the space between the notes. And I think I had just gotten to a point in the song where I thought it needed something. It needs to elevate to a climax. This is the climax to me of the piece. So sometimes when I get stuck, I go into the quadravox and twiddle the knobs until something sounds cool. And then I end up, you know, reacting to it, playing something that I probably would never play without the effect, you know, probably sounds silly without the effect. Sometimes it's very hard for me to figure out what the heck I play because again, that's why I have to label everything really well. Okay, this is this preset with this sound. Okay, now let's try to figure out what those root notes are so I can get that same pattern. That This is one of those songs that I probably would have to relearn. And yeah, it sounds like that 80s crimson stuff that we all know and love. 
And that's my jam. I really like it. Again, it's one of those addictive effects that like we get stuck in a certain place. Like this helps me get out of that jam. And to me, it like really makes the song. All right. Then it finally crashes at the end. We have this prayer thing. Let me actually play the the little bit at 1045, which you say is the sound of the soul being sucked into the next dimension. Just Yes, exactly. Is this still bass going through an effect? This would be the Todd magic. This would okay. probably be an H delay sound that Todd put on Alessandro's vocal. And the H delay is, you know, really freaky delay that Waves has that you can modulate and put filters on. He automates it so it's it's not just a preset. He plays around with it and makes it very musical, which makes it the magic that it is. Wow. So <laughs> that's a great... So <laughs> you wrapped up the album there. So we're going to... And just by briefly introducing, I, w- I wanted to put another one of the sort of pop songs in quotes. I mean, the song Supercell is... Seven minutes. Okay, so, but still, it has the vocals, it has a nice melody, it's got, you know, some of the, those elements. It could be on the radio, I think Marco's voice, you know, it's, it's got... That's actually that's actually Mike Vitzer singing that song. All right. Yeah. Yeah, so that almost like Maroon 5 sort of thing that's in vogue a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think well, From Two Balconies was our attempt at making a pop record. So as you can see, we're very successful with our seven-minute first intro song. <laughs> um, and I think we were just in a place where we, like Le Feel Rouge, we were arriving to this place. Like we wanted to, we were making things a little bit more, again, poppy, mainstream sounding. And, and we were just continuing that energy that we, you know, we just keep writing. And I specifically wrote this one with Mike in mind to add his own vocal. Um, he wrote the words, he wrote the melody. But the bass line, you know, it's just two chords. And I think I was heavily influenced because at the time, and, and I still perform often with a Talking Hedge tribute called Start Making Sense. And Tina Weymouth has these iconic bass lip riffs that a lot of the songs, it's just one vamp the whole time. You know, the bass does not change at all. So this was sort of my ode to that. Again, it's just two chords for most of the song, just the C and then up the minor third to the E flat, and it just repeats. And so I just thought, we definitely need some vocal on this track. And Mike has a great pop sensibility. I started working with him with his project called Springs in 2010. We moved to LA together to work on this project. And we actually wrote The Drift together. That's like the poppiest song to me that I've ever written that I wrote with Mike. So I wrote the song with Mike specifically in mind. I love Marco singing. I love working with Marco as a vocalist. But Echo Test really is a collective. And I like to invite lots of guest musicians, keeping with the theme, you know, that I've always had in writing my own music. To, to me, like inviting guests always makes it better. Just like having somebody else mix it always makes it better. To just have that fresh set of years. You know, I don't like to be so selfish that I have to do everything on my own. To me, these people help me create an even better thing that I could create on my own. Yeah, before we get out of here, do you want to say a little bit about the other stuff? So is it just the Power Trio and Echo Test that are active right now? Because I see on your bio, you know, there's all this RMS Moser, the, you mentioned Springs, and then just a list of people that you've worked with, a lot of whom are bassists. So like with Victor Wooten. Well, that's how Marco and I started working together. I put on Facebook 
uh, hey, I'm in, I'm on tour with Crimson Project in Europe. I want to take advantage of this flight I have over here. Would anybody like to book me or would anybody like to collaborate? And two bass players wrote to me, Steve Lawson and Marco. So I don't know what it is about me. I attract bass players and drummers, not so much guitar players. But when I started working with Marco, it was very eye-opening. Like, oh, I didn't realize I'm really just a frustrated guitar player this whole time. I needed another bass player. <laughs> So these others, like John Anderson and Ann Wilson, these are just session work that you've done here and there? So John Anderson and Ann Wilson, I got to play with through the School of Rock. Okay. Like I said, I was one of the original students. And there was a movie, a documentary created about our school. It was actually released after the Jack Black film. A lot of people think that School of Rock, uh. <laughs> like the chains that are everywhere, came from this Jack Black movie. In fact, it came from Paul's school in Philly. This documentary tanked because it came out after Jack Black's movie. Nobody really understood it. It's called Rock School. We went out in the beginning of 2005 to promote the film. We made a soundtrack for the movie, and I played Barracuda for the soundtrack, and Ann Wilson provided vocals for that, and we also played Heart of the Sunrise, and John Anderson provided vocals for that. Funny story about that real quick. We recorded Heart of the Sunrise. It was actually one of the first songs we recorded for that session, and it was like, some ridiculously early hour, like eight or nine in the morning when we had... Anyway, we record this thing. I'm 19 years old. We send it out to John. John recorded his vocals, sent them back, and the sample rate didn't match at first. So we're all, you know, sitting around all excited, like hands clenched, like, oh my God. And we they played the song and he had recorded just at a different sample rate. So his voice is already very high, but... It was even higher. And at first we thought it was like, this was his serious take. Like he sounded like Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> it was pretty good. I mean, like I said, his voice is already high. So imagine John Anderson. <laughs> it was like, he's just sucked some helium. It was pretty funny. But yeah, the, the other projects, RMS is Tobias, Ralph, Tim Motzer, and myself. We, we need like this live session a few years ago. We've done a couple gigs. I hope to put out, that recording soon we we did that i think back in 2014 already so there's always music ready to be released at any point tim Motzer is a dear friend of mine he plays the second solo on supercell he's like the ingve malmstein coming in uh, like off the mountain it sounds like to me again a visual when i hear my music so he's like i will rescue you from this big rainstorm you know that part uh springs i had mentioned already was my project with Mike Visser. That record is out. Um, that features my brother on drums. So that's a really cool. If you want to hear the slick rhythm section, play some interesting, um, really cool pop music, indie pop music. That's that project. And I'm also currently playing with Beth Fleener. She sings on, on um, Daughter of Ocean. She's on that Tractal Eyes Lighthead. She has a project called Crystal Beth. Crystal Beth and the Boom Boom Band. Um, currently part of her boom boom band here in seattle so um, if you're in the pacific northwest check out her site for dates i'm playing with her as a bass player you know i'm always around playing dipping my toes into lots of different things all right and i didn't notice any i i see that you played on some of the live adrian blue stuff but like nothing particularly recently no the last thing i've recorded with adrian was e in 2009 okay yeah, sadly, we haven't done any, we haven't recorded anything as a trio or as a quartet in some years. We've recorded some, some shows when we were in Australia a couple years ago. Maybe that could, that could be, that could see the light of day at some point. I would, I would hope. 
Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's so great that you're you're so enthusiastic about the getting into the details here. It's awesome. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. Supercell.
Thanks so much to Julie, another very enthusiastic guest and another member of the King Crimson family. I could record with those people for weeks, but with a very different approach from Bill Bruford or Trey Gunn, my past guests from King Crimson. And I always like taking advantage of the fact that this is a podcast. It can be any length that I want to show some really long songs sometimes. To hear more of Julie's work, and there is a lot of it, go to julieslick.com. Her Bandcamp page includes a lot of live material, things beyond the six albums I believe I have attributed to her on this podcast. So this was another 2019 interview. I have one more 2019 interview before I get to the current year. My next release will be Hockey de Picciotto, which is Alexander Hake from Einstütschrei Neubauten, one of the only German groups I think that's really made a substantial splash over here, and his wife, Danielle Picciotto, who is an American and a poet, and man, if you thought Julie used visual imagery to push her songs forward, Alexander and Danielle are all about that. It's very scene-constructive songwriting. So please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. You can find more episodes at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I hope that you will go to the iTunes store or wherever you listen to this podcast. Leave a nice rating, nice review. I really haven't gotten too many of those over the years and could use your help in getting the word out about the great music that I'm promoting here and hopefully... This approach to interviewing, which I hope adds something of significant value to the world over and above merely hearing the music by itself. Love to hear what you think. Please reach out to me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Follow the podcast on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. But mostly, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.